word to the wise we are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us this week we are going to be talking about chapters 36 through 43 in iron gold by pierce brown should be a fun old time just make sure you're caught up there we're going to be going through this we don't line up evenly with parts anymore so much in this book but we will in the next one um but yeah so keep that in mind there this is cross and i'm pj and we are words and whiskey a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike we tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking you should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club yes you should but also now now it has crowdsourcing elements to it in that i'm getting drunk on things that i didn't choose <laughs> yeah pj is partaking in our first patron voting voted cocktail of sorts we didn't have quite enough time to throw it together to do a full you know cocktail for the week but we did source the liquor for your drink yes and the way that worked out was the winners tied at whiskey and rum so i put together a cocktail with both of them and it actually <laughs> turned out really good i'm excited to, to talk about it but First, we've got to talk about what we're actually doing this episode. It is our seventh episode covering Iron Gold by Pierce Brown. We're going through from chapters. We're going from chapter 36 through chapter 43. And uh, I stole this line from you. So first, let's you talk did. about what we're drinking. You did. You're just, it's bolded. You're just great. I, you, you I have, always you've read the one episode. Stuff. Well, not in the intro. <laughs> okay <laughs> it's actually funny because that is the way that it is in the rest of the document but not in the intro which is <laughs> oh wow silly okay so yeah you totally you you run <laughs> one of your own episodes pj and you think that you can just steal this like you think yeah. that you can just usurp <clears throat> this throne it's good to be the king <laughs> so what are you having to drink pj <laughs> okay so it's called canadian punch and it it's based on a punch recipe that makes like a full punch bowl of stuff, but I kind of took that as inspiration and used all the flavors and ingredients from it, but switched it up a little bit. So for the single serving cocktail, I've got two ounces of rye whiskey, an ounce of rum, three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup, the juice of half a lemon, a bunch of muddled pineapple chunks, one big ice cube and a few thin lemon wedges and i grated nutmeg over the top of it so hmm. it is it is very much a tiki drink it is delicious it it hits you a little bit right away but after you're used to the burn initially it is such a nice like tropical just sipper i love it it turned out hmm. really really nice i like the idea of the like muddled pineapple chunks and whatnot yeah it's uh it's pretty pretty good yeah so the, the recipe as it called for it called for like ring, like small half inch rings of pineapple, uh, basically just cutting a whole pineapple, cutting it into rings and then soaking that with like thin slices of lemon. So it doesn't call for lemon juice at all, just thin, thin slices of lemons and uh, letting that soak for like three days to get the f flavors all marinating. But I figured muddling and then juicing the lemon was a quick way to do a single serving drink. Yeah, it would get you get you that result. That makes sense. Yeah. What are uh, what are you chasing it with? I'm chasing that with. I, I figured we've done enough IPAs lately 
and we've done enough like smoothie sours. I wanted to go back to like a nice tart sour. It is the Violet Underground from, it's a collaboration brew between the Wild Beer Co. and Firestone, Firestone Walker Brewing Company. So Wild Beer Co. is out of England. Firestone Walker, I think, is out of California. So it is a wild ale aged in wine barrels with raspberries and candied violet petals. So it uses uh, just wild, wild yeast strains, usually Britannomyces or whatever's floating around in the air to create this sort of funky, sour, sour beer that's not like overly sweet. And that's a lot of a lot of the really popular sour ales right now are very, very sweet and very, very fruity. And this kind of just it cuts through. It's just a tart, sour light drinking beer. Very, very effervescent, very bubbly. So I'm excited. Awesome. Sounds really good. Yeah. What have you got? I didn't change formulas that much from last week. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I am having a Tom Collins, uh, which is basically just a slight modification on gin and tonic. Basically, all it really does is add simple syrup. It adds sugar to the mix to uh, give it a little bit of a sweet back. But as opposed to just kind of going the classic Tom Collins route, I ended up buying elderflower tonic. And let me tell you the difference that that makes, because it is fucking delicious. Like, I I like a Tom (laughs) Collins. It's a good drink. It's It's a little bit sugary. I prefer a gin and tonic over a Tom collins generally but jesus with elderflower tonic i'm just mm, i'm at a loss nice so what, what kind of so gin good. did you use so it's the end of days uh barrel rested gin from the local distillery here in wilmington it's i've i've said this before and i will say it many times but it is the best gin that i've ever had yeah send me a bottle yeah man. i just i fucking no it's good you can come okay. here and get it <laughs> fuck <All> you right. <laughs> okay fine <laughs> um yeah no it's it's really good it's like so for for gin for that barrel rest and stuff it's like 40 bucks a bottle the regular gin is like 23 or something like that and boy oh boy as though i'm not going to upgrade to the barrel rested every single time from now on out it's just too too good it's just oh it's so mm, mm, mm. Good. good to hear and then i'm chasing that with a sycamore brewing company which is another i've i've had many of their beers they're you know from i believe charlotte if i remember correctly their mainstay ipa is called mountain candy and this beer is their double ipa which is called double candy hmm. it's uh it's pretty good it's kind of dank and um you know it's not exactly what i want to follow up this gin and tonic i almost should have grabbed like a lemon sour or something like that that would have been good or like a goza but like a, like a sea salt and lime goza or something like that like sequence oh from dogfish head so i had stones i think it was a sea salt and lime lager okay. and it was not good oh i had it when i had it when neil was here and i i tried it at pour so i only did like a two ounce tasting of it and i like nearly spit it out and i can't remember the last time that like any alcohol made me feel that way hmm. i just i was like physically offended I, I just tasted like I was eating beach. Well, that that sounds bad. Yeah, it was. It was very bad. Very um, bad indeed. If if you just give me a second right here, I'm going to search up El Catalina. I'm trying to think of who it's by. Uh, Inbound, maybe? Fuck. I don't remember. I can't remember what it's called, uh, who it's by, but there's a, there's a beer called El Catalina, and it's this lime goza with... Uh, that's barrel aged in tequila barrels and damn it does it taste exactly like a like a margarita it's really good mm-hmm. but hmm. i can't i can't remember who it was by I, i've had a lot of like 
I've had a lot of beers in that vein that have been great, but mm-hmm. this one just upset me. Yeah, that's deep, deeply frustrating. Sorry to hear. It's okay. It happens. So with that, let's go into last week's predictions. So we've got two to talk about from last week. The The first one is how do our boys get out of this pickle? TM. And boys TM. Said, yeah, TM. <laughs> Uh, I think they'll share their identity with Dido and Serafina since they seem to have a mutual enemy as a means of getting away, potentially offering their services. I will make the case that I'm not entirely wrong. You're not entirely wrong, but you're like, uh, I mean, they both have revealed their identity. You're completely wrong on Cassius. (laughs) Does he not reveal his identity? No, it's revealed for him. <laughs> okay, fine. I'll concede that one. Lysander, though, that's but he's basically not offering any exactly services. what he's doing. No, not yet. Yeah, okay. But I think the next line in uh, in the Lysander chapter that's coming next will be, let me offer my services. <laughs> <laughs> I think you drink for that one. Okay, At fine. least on the front of Cassius. I, yeah, I will. It's also sad that we can basically no longer call them our boys. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, the band is kind of broken up. Ah, they're still our boys. Our boys That's are fair. just fractured. Okay. Okay. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> and then the secondary question that we got a resolution to here is, does anyone in Ephraim's squad die next week? You said. Yes, Dano does. And yes, he did. <laughs> but Syria, Syria also died. So I'm going to say we both drink for that. Right, I'll, I'll accept that. Ah, tasty. I Good stuff. That's a fair, that's a fair answer. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah. And my my other question is that getting pushed to next week? Then correct, correct. That that one is the answer this week, so it just gets moved into the next. Let's one. Let's just say it out loud again, just so people have a refresher. The question was: Does Apple live through the upcoming task? And is <laughs> oh god. All right. Well, <laughs> I said unfortunately yes. Equipped with something, army ships, which is only made extra funny by your prediction at the yep, end of the episode. My- <laughs> Crossland. If you haven't, t- if you haven't been able to tell yet, my predictions are entirely based on temperature and mood. Like it has nothing to do. It, I'm like a mood. So range. you're the chameleon I'm, of predictions. I am the chameleon of predictions. It is not anything to do with what I'm actually thinking. As far as the text goes, it's just in the moment. What am I feeling? And uh, so, where can I say I retract my last one? And go with the Absolutely Deadpool that not. I put forward? Absolutely not. You have well, two then, conflicting answers. I have conflicting answers, so <laughs> we're both drinking for both of them? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're both drinking for one of them. <laughs> it's the conclusion. <laughs> uh, it's, it's good. It's good. The, okay, the interesting people. thing here... Go ahead. Sorry. Continue. Oh, no, I was just going to say the interesting thing here is that, you know, this one can actually go longer than the sort of time frame that you've set on the Deadpool. So that's the only reason that I I, this one could technically go on. You know, like, do you think that this one's going to be answered next week? Hmm. Maybe. Maybe not. Then I'm drinking for both. (laughs) If that's the case. There is. Um. (laughs) (laughs) I see your point. (laughs) that has to do with your own choices i there's been no spoilers here it does you're right side note just off the wall i decided to to shave my head a couple days ago and it feels really weird on my headphones (laughs) 
Like my headphones feel really strange against my head right now. Squeeze. 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 Okay, so with that, let's get into the chapters. So we start off here with chapter 36, Lysander, Dinner with Dragons. We're going to spend a lot of time with Lysander this week, just so everyone knows, like a lot. Like most of most of this is with Lysander. Yeah. So It's like half the chapters are Lysander, right? Yeah, and like two-thirds of the content. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> um, but yeah, so moving forward with chapter 36, dinner. Dinner means cooks. We have a whole <laughs> chapter <laughs> that rotates around meals and customs and, and rice. Cooks. And cooks. Cooks, and baby. The Browns. <laughs> the Browns kind of coming around, divvying out the meals is interesting. And there, there's a whole lot here. What did you make of like the political machinations uh, and the customs that we find here? The customs were really cool. It was the the whole like the whole dinner was really cool in that we got to see these kind of asinine tra- like customs that don't mean anything at all. And they still just stick to them, like waiting before eating when they've been served as a means of proving that they have control over their human desires and shit like that. There was the explanation of why there's a food food shortage and why they're mm-hmm. eating like rice and a small portion of fish. For whatever reason, I don't believe it. It, it, it seems suspicious the way it was described. It, it seemed not not a big enough problem to uh to cause such a huge shortage well i think what was really interesting about the the sort of shortage conversation what was more interesting in my head is that the golds treat it kind of exactly the same for themselves as they do for all of the other colors so everyone's rationing at the same time it was kind of alluded to in the same breath as the docks and the shipyards that cassius was kind of getting after inside of the conversation a little bit later and that's kind of where we get a little bit more of the detail on you know potentially they're they're doing rationing because they're having they're working people differently there's clearly other labor going on and so there's there's been a shift there was some food storage problems of course and so they're on this what would you call it uh rationing at at the time but yeah. sure i mean you can think it seems sus that's well it, it seems thing. suspicious in that it seems so very meager for somebody who's saying that they've had very good harvests and things. But there was one one problem on one of the other moons. So my suspicion is that they are stockpiling food as a means of rationing for wartime coming forward. Like Dido is secretly stockpiling food in order to be prepared to go to war. That makes some sense my only counter argument would be that dido isn't really in control not yet um, or wasn't what was that not yet right right but wasn't in control to have to have like escalated this to a society level rationing you know like but they're saying that this if is she's everywhere. controlling the the food output like if she has a a chokehold on what food gets put into the society she can she can claim that there's less going in than there actually is and siphon it off. Like all, all she needs is to control the the food intake, I guess. If that makes sense. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I just don't know how she would have any kind of lever. There's no explanation given. That I don't would say know that, that she yet. Would have a lever. I'm just saying. I think that's what's going on. Okay. 
<laughs> fair, fair enough. It's not um, my job to know why. Mm-hmm. I just guess yeah. what's going on. I am the Oracle Crossland. <laughs> you are, you are the Oracle. You're here too. <laughs> Oracles can be wrong sometimes, but oracles can be wrong sometimes just sometimes there's there's a lot of kind of discussion within this chapter as well uh, about the look of the room golds and the simplicity in which they live you know the room is only adorned with ivy growing in the walls there's a simple table table that everyone's sitting around there's just this picture of a far more disciplined and less hedonistic society than that of the core golds of the society or the society remnant. What did you make of the the rest of their customs as it comes to the way that they even approach talking to each other? You already mentioned kind of the waiting before the meal, mm-hmm. the way that they even still have kind of the sacred guest treaty that they're talking about with uh, with Cassius and whatnot. What do you make of the whole whole kind of thing? It seems a lot more like what we know of the old golds, the iron golds. They seem more strict and adhere to the idea that golds are meant to be followed rather than leaders and controllers of the other colors. So taking that ideal into the forefront of what they believe and how they conduct themselves is, I mean, it produces something like this. Something a lot more strict and a lot more brutal, but a lot more fair in the like in, in the in the grand scheme. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I I think that it lends to a, a very different picture and kind of a, I mean, I would argue like a superiority complex. It's interesting because it's something that Lysander has clear respect for because he's like, ah, these people these people haven't like turned their backs on you know the the old ways to whatever degree. He even cites the the compact i think at one point inside of this chapter either in his own head or out loud uh in his head i think it was yeah reads it off there's there's a lot of those kind of moments where he's reflecting and he also like builds himself up to say that like he kind of respects these people and believes that maybe he's turned down the wrong path with cassius to some degree which is interesting I, I think that, as I've kind of gotten into already, I think that what's fascinating about this section is that we get to see how Lysander also breaks down the situation and analyzes things from the political discussions of, of Dido and Seraphina and Bellafron and everyone, and Diomedes kind of talking around the table. It's it's interesting. I think that Gaia is a great example of that, of course. The fact that Lysander is able to recognize that she's faking her senility, mm-hmm. but everyone else seems to really believe it because it's it's kind of it's more of a core gold thing, you know. It do, it doesn't behoove or fit uh, rim gold. What? Why do you think she uses the senility as cover? I'm thinking that. All right, I've got a couple ideas. One's a little bit more out there than the other, so I'll go with the more like down to earth one or down to uh, Io. I think she's acting as a spy for Dido. And hmm. and taking in what everybody's saying around her because she's effectively just a fly on the wall if she's a senile old woman to everybody. So she can kind of hear people as their true, true selves gather some juicy bits of information to uh, pass on to Dido. The other way is that she is the secret leader of this whole thing and Dido is the mouthpiece. Hmm. Yeah, I mean... The only thing that I would point to is I, I would feel like it would be a little strange for the mom of Romulus to be on Dido's side, but nah, I'm I'm nah. into it. Into it. Okay. I'm All into right. that. Cool. I'm into that. Like, fuck my kid. You're better. Kind of deal. What do you 
what do you make of Diomedes and Bellafron discussing the Reaper? You know, I, I think that it's kind of interesting and it reveals another piece of information here as well, is that Diomedes too is a storm son of Arcos. It's kind of unclear if his training was that of the Will Away or if he was just taught kind of general discipline by Lorne. Yeah, what, what'd you make of it? So the way I understood that passage was that he wasn't a, he wasn't a student of the Razor from Lorne, but simply a student of discipline and manners and disposition. So he and you you can kind of pick up probably some of the overarching themes of his his Willow Way from that, but not necessarily the actual stances and moves and stuff. So because he 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 is a shade, is he not? As far as stance goes. I think I don't think that they called him a shade. They did call Bellafron a shade. Oh, yep. Okay. <clears throat> but that said, there's, you know, well, maybe maybe we'll figure that out. Maybe we will. But maybe, yeah, maybe my so. my understanding was that he was not a student of the Razor of Lawrence, but rather mm-hmm. taught under him for social things. He is called the Ionian Blade Master, Diomedes. So, Okay. There's there's an assumption there that he maybe he knows multiple styles. Maybe he's got a bunch. Mm-hmm. He collects them. Yeah. <laughs> like General Grievous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I wasn't trying to bring mo- it to lightsabers right now, but you did. <laughs> you know, you did it. <laughs> Not right there. I do it later. What do you mean? I think you it's it later about lightsabers later. Oh god. In the, in the- I, I don't remember that in the notes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the quote too that he he repeats uh, about Lorne. He had no desire to make better warriors, only better men. And I think that that paints an interesting picture, especially when you consider both Di- like compare Diomedes and Darrow a little bit. They have fairly similar demeanors to them, fairly similar like honorifics and principles, at least on the surface. I should say when I say Darrow, I mean Morningstar Darrow, not Iron Gold Darrow. Right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, certainly. I was the, I was thinking even before Morningstar, I was thinking more like, uh, oh, you did, did you say Morningstar or Golden Sun? You might've, I said, I said Morningstar. Okay. I meant Golden Sun. Sure. So before, before it was well known who he was and a lot of that, a lot of his actions and a lot of his speech and a lot of what he does in general was to create a facade that would make it difficult for people to know who he truly was if that makes sense like it's a lot of acting and he's being truthful in a lot of it but he he is definitely he has motivation to act in a way that is is proper and disciplined like like a very well disciplined and well-trained gold would be Mm mm-hmm yeah, I, and I mean, especially when you lean into his belief in a lot of the rim customs, right? Everyone else at the table is more than willing to to break those customs in a matter of minutes. Um, but <laughs> it's uh, it's interesting because he is still he's still standing up as best as he can to you know ensure that the the beliefs of the rim are upheld in a sort of old guard kind of way, right? In a sort of I'm the oldest snobbery. <laughs> okay. You know, you know what I mean? We're both yeah. old. This is fine. We get it. You I know? get it. Pro- protecting the it. the moral and ethical <laughs> components um, <laughs> of what you're taught. You know, don't do that. Why the fuck would you do that? Idiot. It's against the <laughs> rules. 
Oh, I was never like that. Oh, well. I I absolutely reveled in any time my siblings got in trouble for things that I knew they shouldn't have been doing. <laughs> That's <laughs> fair. That's fair. I, I like the idea that Romulus and Dido are this fairy tale on Mars, like love story, the story of love crossing the stars. But the reality that Dido paints is just far more grim and I think interesting. One of being like constantly at siege living out here under attack of all kinds of different variables. As such, almost all the people are treated the same, like we said, albeit they have like their place in the hierarchy of, of society. What do you make of the rim then, given all this kind of new information, especially about the sort of i don't want to equality is not the right word because it's obviously not equality but how seriously they treat the sort of different stations and how they actually do kind of treat gold as a shepherd for humanity like they they act more that way than anyone in the core ever did how do how do you compare it to the society and to the republic so the way i kind of see it is like the rim is to the core as Mormons are to cafeteria Catholics. I have never heard that term. Can you explain what a cafeteria Catholic is? Uh, just picking and choosing. Uh, yeah, just picking and choosing what you actually want to follow within the Bible. So you, you're not adhering to the entire text. You're adhering to what you think is right, which means fuck all then, essentially. Interesting. Right, right. What What do you make of... That's, that's a great point. What do you make of um, the way that they treat the other colors by comparison is this okay like it, it because they're taking it so seriously does that make it okay um, I guess it makes it more okay i think in that they're they're also adhering to the rules that they set out like there, there are actual rules that are all encompassing for all colors but i think slavery is obviously still wrong mm -hmm. and and just oppression is still wrong and we don't really see that that side of it, how that compares. Mm -hmm. um, we can assume that it's probably not great for the low colors, but we, we know that at least, at least the golds aren't gluttonous and hedonistic like they are in the, in the core. Yeah. So you'd think That's there's fair. a little bit more equality, not equality is the wrong word, but a little bit more. Um, oh God, how would you describe it? What, what word am I thinking of here? Any, any help? <laughs> I can't. I, 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 that's also what I was you, struggling with earlier. Like, I didn't like the idea of saying it's because it's not equality. It's, it's sort of like fairness, like fairness is the wrong word too. <laughs> fairness is also the wrong word. I was going to say like fairness to their job description. You know, like <laughs> you don't have to do anything outside of your job description, <laughs> which is not great. It makes it seem like there's less abuse of power though. Sure. Right. It does kind of honor the the compact and the goal of society to push humanity forward. However, that doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really make it better. Cleaner. I mean, we're seeing one family. Who knows if the other goals follow it like this? True, true. We are just seeing one family. With that, just just to go back to it and mention a little bit, what did you make of uh, Romulus and Dido's kind of fairy tale and the reality that Dido faced moving out to the rim? What did you think of that whole component? So I think that their story is... One of a fairy tale. I think that's a great way to put it in that it was a picturesque kind of meeting and love of two prominent figures from different, literally two star-crossed figures. So growing into a powerful couple, 
is is the natural progression of a fairy tale like meeting like that so one I, would argue that they probably aren't a po- powerful couple so much as they are powerful individuals right yeah. it's a powerful family really... that was born out of them yeah that's true lysander also has an internal reflection here about his time over the last decade he still wa- does want to fight the reaper we kind of mentioned this and put society back into place do you feel like he's mentally aligning himself with dido and her coup or do you think he still kind of sides with romulus i mean it's clear by the end of this read this week that he doesn't strictly agree with with cassius any longer but where do you think he lands between the two leaders so i i don't think lysander necessarily aligns himself with dido's coup or cause or where she's going forward her, her reasons for going forward but i i think he aligns with her ends of kind of bringing back the society that was so I think he'll he'll probably try to go forward with the tentative piece of sorts. We'll see if if he's able to talk his way out of the very tense situation that we find himself in at the end of this this section. But I, I think he disagrees with her motivations, but agrees with her ends, if that makes sense. Sure. Okay. Okay. So Dido's motivations become clear and a reveal is made. The information they discovered wasn't necessarily about the nukes, or perhaps not only the nukes, but something different. A different spark to ignite the rim and lead them to fucking war. Dido's pretty diabolical. Diabolical. Yes. Yes. We are on the same page, Crossland. We are friends, and uh, I am... Trial runs over, I am going to... I'm going to continue doing this show with you. Oh, Good nice. There. Good. That, that clinched it. The didobolical. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, we have a lot more Lysander to talk through here, so <laughs> we're just going to move on there because we're going to talk about this a little bit more. This next chapter is really short. However, it is also very important um, in its own right. So chapter 37, Lysander Prey. We, we open up with the safe and Cassius's ploy. What do you make of kind of the, the whole scene that we find ourselves in after Dido plays her cards? So what I, what I found kind of interesting was we know that Lysander's or really Carnus's razor, I think. Correct. Carnus's, right? With, with the titanium shielding over it. Yep. And then Cassius's institute house ring and it, they mentioned house rings so i'm assuming it's his uh academy house ring as well uh the selenius ring is in there as well octavia's ring okay gotcha but that's that's all we know right we don't know of anything else in there uh the book of poetry that his mom wrote for sure okay that was that was mentioned previously that he has this book of poetry and so stashed all of his belongings in there uh, so, so. It, was, it was everything that the both of them had that identified them and that was one piece for sure. So at that point, if they're both revealed, their identities are re- revealed. The if if that's all that's in there, the the safe doesn't matter anymore, right? Well, Lysander isn't revealed here, right? Not not so at like, this they point. Don't. But yeah, going forward later on, we know he calls for the for the safe to be brought out. Which Correct. we can get we can get into that later if you want, but. Because there's the thing that she put inside of his razor hilt. Whatever she found, she put inside of his razor hilt. And taking correct, that correct. apart is what gave him away. Yes. Yep. Exactly. Okay. Correct. 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 That's so. exactly what it is. Okay. Yeah. We don't so know what that, that is yet either. That's that's what I was getting to. Sorry. I forgot exactly how it got there. 
So Dido has a, a long monologue here that takes up a, a good chunk of the chapter about the death of Thessalia and leading into the reveal that she knows that Cassius is at the table, which makes this much all of this much more upsetting. Of course, the, the jig is up. Also, every other person she listed in her list of revenge targets is dead. Uh, revenge cannot be extracted against them. The only one left alive from the triumph and the one that she blames for the death of her daughter is Cassius himself, the one in front of her. I don't think it's even just blaming. Like, she knows. And even if the other people were still alive, it'd still be Cassius that would be the primary target here because she knows that Cassius is the one that, like, stepped on her head until it caved in. Cassius didn't actually do that. That's that's all a large but, assumption. But that's what she knows. That that those those are the act like that's the story that she's that's, been told. That's the story. Yes. So it's not like she ambiguously blames him. It's that she, in her understanding, knows that he is the one that killed her actively. Right, but it's not the truth. True. You're right. But convince her of that. <laughs> who actually did kill her i can't remember but i don't think that it gets so specific that it actually says who cassius wasn't there though he arrived later mm-hmm. so that's where yeah. that's where it becomes you know mm-hmm. clear the the other bit that i i want to talk about here too is there's there's some interesting parallels here so i i find this kind of duology of scenes very similar to the octavia scenes that we get in golden sun right they've got kind of those same elements of kind of stalling and then seeking the truth it's also interesting that we have two very powerful women in in the chairs in both of these scenes which i find fantastic from a representation and writing standpoint it's it's excellent to have this sort of characterization and these powerful women making moves instead of the story is is wonderful what what do you make of kind of the the comparison between octavia and, and dido here hmm that's a good question a comparison that i've never really thought about making but at this point they're both very much in control of and uh would you say dido's in control of the rim right now no no Not the yet. coup is still still happening that's kind of the later in this chapter it's alluded to that the reason that this duel in the bleeding place is going on is to unite people yeah still okay fair enough then i really don't see a whole lot of parallels between them other than the fact that they're strong women i was gonna say i want to throw a secondary parallel in here for you and that is of julia albalona and sort of the way that her her son Julian was taken from her and the sort of revenge seeking that she sought throughout the first series and arguably still seeks <laughs> um, what you know I think that that's maybe a more apt comparison at the very least when considering Julian and Thessalia in in sort of their own ways what do you make of that so I, I think Julia would be kind of the blending of Octavia and Dido in that mm-hmm. she is very much driven by this revenge but still has the the core gold ostentationism i guess to draw to pull a silver world silver word out (laughs) indulgence like there's still the indulgence of the core golds that and and the lack of restraint which uh dido possesses so yeah i i think i think that's really interesting because i dido is this core gold who's been shaped by 
rim values and so she has this sort of the sort of brutal edge of julian octavia but also understands more keenly i think than julia for sure or the very little that we've seen of julia political moves and how to make and take these sort of steps to uh, move her agenda forward it's it's really really interesting and fascinating reading throughout the section and seeing her kind of make move her chess pieces into place Mm -hmm. as she's been doing kind of this whole time for sure yeah she's been she's been playing some 3d chess here it's been Mm -hmm. it's been uh it's been diabolical to say the least yeah diabolical to say the least (laughs) with that we'll move into chapter 38 which is another lysander chapter grusily 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 man i really like diomedes I like I really like Diomedes. I think that he's a great character. He's you know, he's got a backbone. He kind of reminds me of Lauren in some ways, but more modern, a little bit less aloof or beholden, perhaps. But I I love how Diomedes is like, Mom, I'm not an idiot. That can't be Cassius. You're you're making this big assumption that it's Cassius Albalona. That's not it, man. Yeah, it can't be it, Mom. I know him. I've seen him. What a dumb idiot. <laughs> Dido's such a dumb idiot. She can't even see that. That's not that's Can't even see his face. <laughs> can't, even, can't even see it. And then the fucking monster dude, the Grusily, the Grusely. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh, Grizz, Grusely. Yeah, Grus. I don't Grus. Bruce Lee. The Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee. Mm-hmm. Bruce Lee. Yes. Yes. I. It's straight out of a horror movie, man. The way it like sucks and gurgles in the flesh is just like bone chilling and the milky residue that's left and the blood like dripping off of his face just feels it's so cool. But it's also like, oh, like just <laughs> yeah. so it it did kind of lose me a little bit in that this just abyssal creature whatever it whatever depths it crawled out of how is it able to undo the procedure that cassius did to himself when it it explicitly was described as changing his actual bone structure as as opposed to like putting a mask over it it like actually changed his his skull structure correct with like cortisol injections and stuff like that so i'm sure the tentacles there's a description here she says it eat, eats masks is how she describes it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It seems weird that it it can like break down bone and calcium deposits into what it used to look like. Yes, it's a mass of puncture wounds and thin trails of blood. So it's it's very clearly tracking wherever the injections and wherever the molding was taking place. Okay, <clears throat> it's not perfectly described, but I would say that that's. The way that they describe it with like a massive punctures, I'm sure it just sticks tentacles in and then is like feeling around for wherever there are injections and then pulls it back. I'm sure it's a horrifyingly painful process Yeah, I can't in the same way. That, good. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> squeals like a burning worm and rides in the air over Cassius's face. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Push past the layers of pallid flesh towards his face. Bleh. Bleh. Ugh. Bleh. Blech. it's yeah it's crazy it's horrifying it reminds me kind of of like i think of the alien creature to some degree but not quite it's got to have like way more tentacles and be way way uglier i like the way that you called it an abyssal animal because it's clearly like from the depths of the mariana trench or you know mm-hmm. it's something like that that doesn't see light just awful they describe it as like a slug too though or slug like with tentacles and apertures that the tentacles come out of mm-hmm. so yeah i don't know there's a whole lot of description there it 
it's like an arachnid slug with tentacle apertures. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. it, I don't understand how all of those things come together as one creature that makes sense evolutionarily. Well, it's clearly a carved creature. Well, well, sh- <laughs> that's that's where I was going. Like, it's it's very clearly carved. Um, but oh, certainly, yeah. certainly, yeah. And then, of course, we have Cassius now revealed on the flesh and completely himself again. I love this line uh, that he that he recants to the whole audience here. You all think you're the chosen people, the keepers of the flame. Please, you know how many have thought that you're just like the rest. Too vain to realize the flame was dead before any of us were ever born. I mean, he's got a pretty good point. They're they're definitely self like self righteous, but they seem to have their priorities pretty straight in regards to how to exist within the society in relation to the other colors. So there's vanity, but at the same time, at least they're kind of cool about it. I don't know. I don't know the right way to describe it. Cool about it. (laughs) Yeah. They're not super racists. They're just kind of racist. Comparatively. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like, I mean, yes, yes. You still have to condemn their, like, their enslavement of other people but at least it's better than the core yeah i actually in in a little bit in the way that lysander reacts i think i kind of empathize with the way or sympathize with the way that he's thinking i don't empathize with lysander whatsoever uh but i do i do sympathize with kind of his thought process here where cassius is imprinting a lot of the core on everyone else and is imprinting a lot of his experience as a way of of uh retribution for his past errors and sort of all of the blood that has kind of has followed him throughout his life you know all of the mistakes that he's made and Mm -hmm. i think that he is also here he's not like he's not wrong cassius is not wrong but he's also definitely he's kind of painting a caricature of of golds and these golds are a little bit different but i do i do agree with him at large that at some point, even the rim, you you get far enough removed from values and things like that over time that eventually the rim would succumb to the same sort of things. Yeah. And I'd be really curious to see if other golds within the rim are more like the core. And if this is just yeah. kind of like one crazy religious nut job holdout sect. <laughs> Fair point. Yeah. I don't know. That's, that's a good point. And I think that that is, again, you know, it is something... That would be nice to see more of. We do get a bunch of other family names and we do see them kind of gather around just like we did in Morningstar. But that doesn't mean, you know, we we really know them as well. And that also doesn't mean that they actually adhere to those principles when they're outside of the raw family estate. Very true. I mean, you don't have to look that far, actually, even to just see Bellifron and the way that he kind of acts and responds. And he is very similar to uh carnus and i would argue to some degree titus Mm -hmm. yeah i'd agree in sort of behavior and mannerisms yeah i'd I'd certainly agree so but we also find out that lysander there that dido doesn't actually know who lysander is and she assumes him to actually be a brother of cassius that survived the purge of the jackal and names a couple of names that he he could be i mean it's a pretty reasonable assumption Especially the way they act together. They they definitely act like brothers. Mm-hmm. And I guess act in both like just the way they interact with each other, but also when they're actually acting 
and pretending <laughs> to be brothers. But I, I think it's a perfectly reasonable assumption to to say, okay, these two are probably both Bologna children. Yeah. I'm still point. confused as to how she knew. Like what gave how she what, knew how she knew that it was actually Cassius. Um, wasn't it the razor or something Who like was that? Lysan- that it noticed? was Lysander's razor. Yeah, right. Because it had eagles on the hilt. Yeah. So w- from from there, from knowing this is an eagle it adorned razor hilt held by this kid, held by Correct. Lysander. How do you jump from there to, I know this other guy is Cassius? Well, if you extrapolate a little bit, right, if you think about the fact that he's got the Screaming Eagle hilt, right, which is the hilt that Lysander had on his razor, that means that Serafina makes the assumption that he might be Theseus Albalona, which is one of the one of the two that um, are presented, in which case this other mysterious gold is likely the other last Bologna as they've pitched themselves as brothers and as they act like real brothers. Oh, uh, one question. Yeah. Did Cassius do the, uh, Serafina was on the ship when he, uh, when he altered his face, wasn't he? Or wasn't she? She was already there with them. Uh, correct, but passed out. The entire time? I mean, she was in a different part of the ship, too. Okay. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. I don't know. I'm just... It's a jump. It's a jump of assumptions that seem to be a little bit more flimsy than what somebody would want in an, in a, an accusation, accusation like that. With that, Diomedes refuses the Dido's offer, of course, of, of entering into the blood feud uh, to kill Cassius. Seraphina is determined by Dido as likely to die and therefore ineligible to partake in the blood feud. But Bellifron, Bellifron, the son of Alisau Ra, steps up to the plate and challenges Cassius to a duel in the bleeding place. Dope. That's pretty fucking dope. But, I mean, here we go again. With with Cassius, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. How often is he going to find himself in blood feuds, ending in a in the bleeding place? Like more than more than most people, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cassius Cassius is definitely. I mean, he is he is renowned as one of the best duelists or the best duelist of the core, right? So it only mm-hmm. it only makes sense um, that he would find himself all over this and trained by Aja, no less, which is. Also interesting. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a lot there. I mean, if he if he go, keeps doing this, he'll significantly lower the percentage of people that come out of fights in the bleeding place. At at its standard, it's fifty percent. But if he's constantly <laughs> also like constantly still coming out, like forty five percent of people can get out of this one on one combat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not really fifty fifty if you enter the ring with Cassius, especially considering what we know happens later. <laughs> exactly. Um, cool with that chapter 39 ephraim lion's den so we move back to our heist where we had left the last week off uh with lyria and we're switching perspectives to ephraim here we we find out a lot about ephraim was doing that he basically pulled the ship out of air post the emp with a gravity well into a temporarily secured bunker while also pulling in a bunch of other things along the way and the prize is abducting packs for the syndicate so 
I'm with you. I think Pax is the actual target, but it's interesting that Se- what we assume to be Severo's child is also taken. It's never it's never explicitly stated. The only thing that tips it off is the use of the term hatchet face. Uh, I mean, it's it, never explicitly stated, but it's clearly understood to be. It, it's not it's not even it's not even a moment of dramatic irony. It's definitely they know that it's the Julie eyes, especially given later information. Like they they're very aware. Okay, fair enough. Under that assumption, knowing that it's those two, it I I don't think this is malicious towards the kids. Okay. I think that taking them is ridiculous motivation for controlling the Sons of Ares. You can get the entire Howler Battalion to do basically whatever the fuck you want if you have their kids as hostages. Okay. Why do you think the syndicate wanted packs and by that i mean i understand what you're saying where the howlers can do anything what's the what's the end game then um that i'm not sure yet i don't know the syndicate well enough and i don't know what their affiliations are but my assumption is their end game is strong arming darrow and severo and the rest of the howlers to do something for them with Hmm. with the well-being of darrow and severo's children as the carrot okay but we know that Darrow's a shitty father, so he's not going to care, right? I don't. I, I think he'll care. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I mean, I don't uh, think he's going to be a good father, but I think he's mm-hmm. a caring father. But yeah, that's fair. <laughs> but I think that's also why you. I mean, we'll get into it later, I'm sure. But when uh, when the Duke shows shows Pax's pimp hand, mm-hmm. like that, that's about the whole weak ex- thing. Yeah, exactly. I I think. He is strictly acting under uh, orders from the queen, and he wants a little bit of just violence, even though she was kind of told to, or she told them to uh, make sure they're unharmed, all that. So I, I think he just kind of, that was a rogue, a rogue play, and really it, it's keep them safe, but they're going to be hostages that's my guess that's my out there guess on what's going on with this and that makes sense that's why severo's kid is there too because if it was strictly on darrow it would just be more uh more liability to take severo's kid as well but you want to strong arm them as a group and essentially as a battalion by taking both okay all right i'm trying to decipher your responses and I, I know, <laughs> I know, I'll never get anything out of it. But I'm, I'm trying to figure out if I'm getting any like positive or negative feedback on that. I mean, the the biggest thing for me is just trying to keep it all the same, regardless. I know, and trying do, not to. You do a pretty trying good job not of to that. trying not to react and like shoot down ideas or theories. But I think that you raise an interesting question as far as it goes with what what the queen's planning here. So. It's it's interesting. We talked about the hatchet face thing. I think it's funny that from the very first book, this this phrase hatchet face being reused so many times to describe the line of the Barkas is fantastic between, you know, <laughs> even even the fact that Ephraim recognizes and calls it a hatchet face is just like, the fuck does that mean? Like <laughs> the fact that you know what it means to Ephraim fucks me up. Yeah, it's pretty funny. But I mean, it's clearly that's clearly dropped as a as a hint of who they're actually taking because it it really doesn't say anything else there's no other sentence that says who they're taking other than the term hatchet face 
The Slender Gold Girl is a hatchet face and deep set angry eyes, and like the boys, she shows no fear, just absolute unmitigated hatred. She's promising me a slow death with that look as I cut her free of her crash webbing and cut the bleeding sun brooch from her jacket. I can't resist patting her on the head. So the, the bleeding, bleeding sun brooch would probably be a sigil of House Julia. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah. Still pretty vague. Uh, fairly, it, but we, fairly. we have an understanding as the audience, and also we Ephraim do. clearly knows. Yeah. He just doesn't need to say it. I mean, adrenaline's going. Mm-hmm. No Zolodone, but adrenaline. Yeah. So, it, I mean, still, like, it, I, it's, it's, gr- it's a great way of conveying without you know just strictly saying yeah i man the moment in which f contemplates killing lyria uh, even like pulls the trigger and he uh, still has the safety on there's just so much there it's like a true moment of grief it emphasizes their similarities their connection to each other even though lyria doesn't really know the real f only knows philippe what'd you make of his decision to do this job without zolodone and the whole sort of decision making around lyria so i i think first of all i think it really kind of highlights how much she reminds him of trig he talks about it a couple mm. different times explicitly i think his his point of doing this entire job with zolodone and i'm i think it's a means of ensuring that he feels everything and knows exactly what toll emotionally this is taking on him so he never goes back he never goes back to the syndicate to uh to get more jobs because he'll constantly be thinking and feeling whatever's going on here Hmm. okay that's really really good i i'm having a tough time especially when you think about kind of the the trig comparison and then you throw in the component with the syndicate it's man he's he's having a tough time with all of this and also like you said the choice to live through it actively and to absorb all of this stimuli is a great way to get it so that he won't ever come back to doing this and also kind of helps explain why he does take the the zolodone later at a different point it guarantees this is one last job Mm -hmm. in his mind and then he's going to remember it all yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. I, he's he's reflecting on Lyria a little bit here and the, the moment that they have where they're sucking down oysters. Uh, this is a little quote. It was like seeing a child laugh at an adult's joke, so proud to feel accepted, but still self-conscious, wondering if their ignorance will be found out. And, uh, man. It's such a good analogy. It just makes you wish that Lyria could just be happy. Yeah, she can't. <laughs> she, she can't catch a fucking break. No, nope. she... Nah, she can't. God damn it. She had a little bit, though, for just a, just a hot second. Just a hot Not second where you had a good kinda. life. Kinda. <laughs> I mean, the pretenses were bad, so there's She that. was still on shit duty for the for the <laughs> giant fox that had higher station than she did. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then Dano. Dano shoots the drunken bear of Kavax in the chest before he pen- punches his head clean off of his spine a white root of spinal cord juts upright into the air and i think it said something about his head bending so far that his ear was touching his shoulder just <laughs> fucked it's so fucked up mm-hmm. messed up it, seriously there is the uh the mention of reinforced knuckles and it's not entirely clear whether or not that's like brass knuckles or like an external like armored portion like a portion of his armor that goes over his knuckles or if it's just like anatomically his knuckles are super fucking hard i'd assume it's anatomical because i don't think he's wearing armor at this point there was no expectation right of anything you know it's just it's a weird way to describe 
his fist then as reinforced knuckles. Well, comparing it to like other anatomy, I guess, like other colors anatomy is where where my brain goes. It's like, ah, yes, he's a gold. He's got reinforced knuckles. Like naturally his bone density is thicker. Okay, that's fair. But it also it also could it could be like an implant. It could be implanted like reinforced knuckles. Too. Oh, that's an I, I see it third option. Yeah. Either way. Yeah. Yeah. I don't see I don't see it as something external. I don't see it as brass knuckles. I see it as either his physical bones or implants to do that. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Sorry, Dano. Bad time. <laughs> Sorry about it. Bad news bears. Shouldn't have stolen from that gold woman, huh? Also, Volga shoots the shit out of Cavax. Yeah, she does blow like two giant holes in him and like his arm i think if i remember correctly his his arm his hand yeah Yeah. like his bone is exposed or something dude's not having a good time no or he's having a great time he's the kind of person that would be having a great time with this scenario i don't even think he shouted his name you know no he shouted pax yeah right he was shouting after pax right in a kind of gurgled way after escaping ephraim slams a couple of zildone and refocuses on the mission helping the yellow and violet complete their job of cleaning up the kids of any trackers or identifiers and then because cool guys don't look at explosions they blow up everything they (laughs) used and make their getaway with their prize (laughs) good very good they do mention checking and like double checking the radiation stand uh stains do you think it's very expensive to apply like a radiation signature because i can totally imagine like daytime hollow ads for child staining (laughs) radiation services to keep your kids safe (laughs) that's so funny and probably very real yeah, I'm sure it is. I'm sure, like, on gold holocan. Holocan, right? Holocan, yep. Holocan, yeah. Just gold channels if they're segregated that way, which, why wouldn't they be, right? I can imagine just, do you know where your child's at? At this hmm. radiation signature, you can track them whenever. Which is, I mean, literally an episode of Black Mirror, but also <laughs> also literally real life right now. So. Yeah, I mean, you can just get yourself an Apple tag. Yeah, exactly. For your cows, I guess. I don't know. By the way, I very, like, very heavily am considering getting one if I can uh, find a way to attach it to my puppy's collar, because that <laughs> would be a really good way of keeping track of my dog if he ever gets out. Yeah, they're they do have collar attachments. Okay, good to know. I'll yeah. probably be purchasing one of those. Yeah, I think one of the the cool things about the Apple tags themselves is uh, battery replacement is very easy. Yeah, so which was not a thing in uh, tiles for a long time. We could go on and on about that because that's yeah. I think that's legitimately one of the best recent Apple like innovations that gets brushed under as just stealing tiles idea and it's it's a lot more than that right right it's something that they've been building technically for a long time but it's also just the functionality is a whole lot more than what tile actually offers because of the network of phones correct yeah that's what i meant by like they've been building it for a long time is because Mm -hmm. of the network of devices and like all of the the whole thing so the that equates to radiation stains in the way that you know obviously i can imagine both being sold one is being sold currently and one would definitely be sold in the future right what do you think of the getaway by the way would you make of the whole decision to like take lyria help her out and kind of that whole whole component i think it makes sense to take lyria especially with him not being on zolodone and with him having already talked a lot about how much she reminds him of Trig, I don't think there was any scenario where he actually disposed of Lyria. I think I think it was pretty inevitable that he'd be rescuing her from the scenario that he wrought. Yeah, and the the whole like taxi, the hover bike, the getaway cars, the 
the gravity well that pulls in the ship, the giant thing. What do you think of the heist as a whole? It, it was pretty slick. It was pretty slick. It's hard to get a little. It, it's hard to get more uh, streamlined than that. It was very well put together. All right, but it is entirely dependent on Lyria being in a in a, an advantageous part of the ship. If there's if there's like uh, cameras and stuff on that on that necklace. Maybe that makes it a little bit easier. Part three, dust. Moving into this part of the book, I believe this is the final part. So we we go into part three, dust, and we start off with this quote, of course, which is the quote quote from House Raw, "Pulvis et umbra sumus." We are but dust and shadow, which is the House Raw saying. What any thoughts on the quotes and what that might mean for this section? I think it makes a lot of sense for the Raws, at least as as far as we've seen under the uh the influence of Dido. They seem to respect tradition and the historical figures, but they also don't seem to care so much about building or maintaining their own legacy. Uh, okay. If that makes sense. So they, they don't really they know that they're going to just kind of fall to dust and things will be built on top of them. But at the same time, there are great there is greatness that should be honored and followed so that'd be the shadow part i guess yeah fair it also kind of ties in with the way that they describe the fighting style of the rim to to a certain degree you know the fact that there's shades and everything else there's there's something sort of dark and mysterious about the the rims the way they, they fight and that all that all kind of tracks as well with the quote mm-hmm it definitely does. Any uh, any any predictions on what that means for this section of the book? Ooh, I mean, obviously we have the actual bleeding place, and we know how that goes. I don't know. I don't know what the implications are yet. I haven't really thought about that. It's a good question. I will All right. keep it in my mind, but I don't have a solid answer for you. Fair enough. Cool. So we move into chapter 40, Lysander, the bleeding place. Cassius's reflection to Lysander about his father and how he changed is, it's just incredible. This, the whole like two page monologue that Cassius goes on talking about his life, his youth, his sort of uh, neglect and the way that he changed is incredible and lends so much to this character the fact that we we basically get you know we've we've talked about kind of our dreams or our thoughts about like what you would want to do to fill out the series in some way or what you'd potentially do for a tv show to fill out the series and i think that this is actually a great example of something that would fit in golden sun and morning star right like this this little story right here would fit very, very well inside of that framing, cutting away to Cassius and kind of the way that he earns his place uh, with his dad or his, his sort of faith back from his dad. What did you make of the moral redemption growing up and change that Cassius sees and the whole story of the white Edelweiss flower? So I think it only makes sense for this story to be in this book, because if it was earlier... We would be, I, I think the payoff of the the twist at the end of, um, of Morningstar would be a lot less strong if we had some empathy with Cassius. Some more, any more empathy with Cassius would make the strength of the twist weaken. Sure. Okay. So I agree. I think it would be a very interesting story to put forward in previous books. But I think we needed to have Cassius be kind of a dickhead. Oh, yeah. By that, I meant more of the adaptation side of things, not necessarily the books themselves. 
even even in the adaptation i guess if you're approaching the adaptation with the assumption that everybody watching it has already read the books but i think that's a naive assumption well i i don't think that it's folly to say that he could he could redeem himself and then appear to redeem himself and backstab darrow but then actually backstab not backstab darrow you know what i mean like going it going back to morningstar if he earns this redemption this emotional redemption and then backstabs Darrow, you know, killing, quote, Severo, that's a big deal. Like, that's a really big deal to see. The hanging scene where Severo saves him feels like a bigger deal because he's earned some kind of moral redemption. And then when he finally turns on Octavia, you realize that he's become this moral, upstanding man that his father wanted him to be this whole time. And I feel like that that can pay off properly if set up right. If set up right. And if, if he is either is an intimate point of view or is close to an intimate point of view for the story. It'll be, it would be interesting to see if they follow Darrow strictly or if they start doing like what this book does and split it up. I think that makes more sense narratively, but yeah, I think, I think you'd kind of have to in different components just to lend a little bit more to the story, but yeah, approach it more game of uh, game of Thrones TV show style. Like yeah yeah split split up it, the narrative yeah and you could you could create whole whole scenes out of you know while darrow's at the academy you could create different scenes with cassius where he's dueling his way through the the luna duels right that they talk about here as well mm-hmm. what do, what do you make of the the story of the white edelweiss though and kind of the the character moment that we get here in this moment not thinking about the adaptation or anything else i, I mean i think it's a beautiful story i think it's it's a story of a father seeing his son in the eyes i mean it's a little bit fucked up in that cassius's father was never like understanding of cassius until he became more of a of a worthy warrior basically but i don't think it was so much warrior it was more that he was fighting honorably okay that's good point you're right fair enough my point still stands is that it's it's beautiful to see that progression the emotion that comes with it over over Cassius really humanizes him a lot. Right, right. It definitely does. I, lo- I love this quote as well that Cassius says, I'm afraid because this world is all that is. Carnus was right. But who knows? Perhaps the darkness will be kinder than the light. It's just a, it's a wonderful kind of reflection on sort of the differences between the two of them, between Carnus and between Carnus and Cassius. The, there is sort of even a, a hopeful tone in this moment of, of darkness and despair for Cassius where he sees he sees this as his moment to die. So we're to assume that this comment Lysander sees as an inside joke is the uh, the quote from Carnus that's like all we are all we have is our shout into the void or shout into the wind or whatever it is. Right. I, I, am I reading that correctly? Correct. So we all die and the universe will carry on without care. All that we have is that shout into the wind, how we live, how we go, and how we stand before we fall. Okay. So, I mean, And this is definitely a stand before the fall. He's he's right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I would be inclined to believe that that Karnas is right in that sense. But it's... It's interesting to see this from Lysander's perspective, who calls it an inside joke. 
And I mean, it's something that we know because we know, of course, the quote, because it's oft repeated by Darrow instead of his own head in both this book and the last one. Right. And it kind of it sticks around and lingers on the edges of everything mm-hmm. with Carnus. So, yeah, it does. the argument between Cassius and Lysander no longer pulling punches, I think, is fascinating. Lysander says you opened Pandora's box. Now you've spent th- these years trying to justify the choices you made. What do you make of their argument to each other about society at large and otherwise? I think this conversation is pretty necessary. Like they're, they're, they're arguing with each other and they're facing each other truly and speaking freely, really kind of for the first time, not, not the, the very first time, but really letting it come to a head for the first time because Cassius is finally actually facing a realistic threat of death even before Dido decides to disregard the rules of the trial by combat that they found themselves in. Like Cassius will very likely die here. He is not on his own planet. So he's not in his own gravity. Like he has every disadvantage thrown at him. So like it it does not look good for him. So having this opportunity to really speak freely and fight with each other, I think is really important. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. It's, it's so frustratingly interesting. The whole like thought of Lysander also blames him, right? Like the whole wolves and letting the wolves in the door and, you know, needing to close it comment. I can't remember if that's here a little bit later, but it's man. Lysander's got a bit of a jaded perspective yeah no kidding (laughs) (laughs) i mean especially for a 20 year old you you earlier on in in the series were comparing him a little bit with with darrow and sort of the way that their journeys parallel each other where where do you think they lie on that parallel scale i'm gonna be completely honest with you i do not remember that in comparison (laughs) well just the idea that they were kind of in hiding they were hiding their personalities and that they they themselves were kind of running you know i mean hidden the sort of youthful protagonist, the 20-year-old, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I remember that now. What was the question, though? Where does it land now? Yeah, what? where's where's your opinion of Lysander sit now? Well, now they're basically... Now Lysander's in, at a point where he's essentially forced to reveal himself and reveal who he is. Not in the same way that Darrow was, but maybe in a similar feeling. Lysander probably feels like the only way he can move forward is is to reveal who he actually is. Whereas Darrow didn't really have the choice, but you know. Um man, that's an interesting parallel. It really is. It's it's definitely a whole problem <laughs> that needs to be kind of sorted out. It does. It is. The there's there's a final quote here that kind of seals up the deal, so to speak, between the two of them. And Man, it's it's like horrifying also that, you know, friendships can end in this this fast line, this like matter. I I don't even know how to say it. Like the way the quickness with which Lysander ends this friendship is heartbreaking. Ten years of brotherhood evaporate in a breath and they like Cassius suddenly turns cold. I mean, we haven't seen Cassius this cold, I think, since Julian. In the way that he kind of reacts to Lysander after he refuses a, a lot of different components, he he just gets very very frustrated and angry mm-hmm. with uh, with Lysander. This was kind of a long time coming, though, wasn't it? Like they, yeah, their yeah, relationship been... had been on the rocks since the shipwreck, and may, mm-hmm. kind of even before that. Like it, it, 
they were yeah, Lysander was being apart. angsty and calling him a drunk and everything else. You know, yeah. at the very least in well, his own head. Because he was. Because so. well, <laughs> Cassius yes. was a drunk. Is a drunk. Like yeah, you can call him angsty for calling him out for it, but it's not. It doesn't make it less true. You know. True. True. <laughs> so like this, this rift has been growing and it's just mm-hmm. finally coming to a head. Right. Right. Ah, uh, yeah. It's man. It's it's a lot and. Just like that, Cassius accepts the inevitability of his death here against the Raw. This duel isn't for me, it's for you. If you love me at all, you will let me die, he says to Lysander. What do, what do you make of, of those, that feeling, that sort of finality here? I don't... Do you think he actually feels like he is putting up the good fight for something he believes in? Or do you think... I'm more of the opinion he's just kind of done running and done fighting and done pretending to be somebody else. This feels more like giving up than it does making a stand. I think it's a little bit of both. I totally see where you're coming from, though. I mean, I think that that makes a lot of sense that he... He's just at this point and this is kind of his out. This is his way of going out in the way that, you know, especially given the way that he reflected in Carnus's quote, right? The read it again here. We all die and the universe will carry on without care. All that we have is that shout into the wind, how we live, how we go and how we stand before we fall. And so, so he kind of uses this as a, a false sort of footing, I would say, this for is which his shout to, into to step the wind. into the yes right yeah. and he's he's actually like choosing it to be his shout into the wind which i don't think you actually get to do you know like you don't actually generally most people don't get to pick what their legacy is their legacy is their actions their choices their decisions and so he's kind of falsely stepping into this with the understanding that this can be what i'm remembered for and i don't at think the same time i don't necessarily agree with you there I think that that's that's what fits into your explanation of this, though, is that like he he is done running. He's he's done kind of fighting and pretending. And so he's just choosing this as a moment to go out on on a high note and in protecting something he, yeah, feels good about. But but is it the best cause to die for? No, not necessarily. But I think if it was like if this was the best cause to die for. He's still choosing to be like to let this be his shout into the wind. And I think that's noble and I think that's honorable going into something that, you know, is futile. It's just it's whether or not he was actually genuine about that belief or if it was using that mantra as reason to give up. But I, I, I disagree with the idea that you can't choose what you die for. You can choose what you die for, but you can't choose what you're what you're remembered for. To an extent, sure. Yeah, I, I I suppose so. But if if it's if it's something very very powerful and very important, and you die for it, that's yeah, probably what I mean, you're going to be right. remembered for. Like right. You, you can, right. You can kind of make you can you can make bets about it a little bit. Yeah, you you can. I would say that you could hedge it a little bit, and I think that that's kind of what he's doing here. I think what's interesting is that Lysander a little bit later is also reflecting on his decision in the moment to kind of choose to die here. Is is one because he he Lysander is imprinting on him and saying that he doesn't want to face all of the the Pandora's box that he's opened and all the death that he's created in turn and the the violence that the that Lysander associates with the rising and it being the rising's fault. He mm-hmm. he pins that on Cassius. I don't think Cassius accepts that or like thinks that that's real. 
but I think Cassius is definitely exhausted. Oh, certainly. I think it's a little bit selfish in that Lysander is not going to just walk away unscathed from this, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, there's not really many scenarios where Lysander gets to just kind of go home after it, after this showing. Yeah. Hmm. Unfortunate. And then finally, since the mention of the Bleeding Place books and books and books ago, we uh, we get a description, and it's it's basically a Roman amphitheater. Yeah, it is entirely different than what I believed it to to look like. I don't know why, but my like my thought of the Bleeding Place, and I, I think you're probably gonna laugh at me for my description of this, but I I essentially envisioned a bocce ball court. <laughs> Like, bocce ball courts are really small. Yeah, they're not that big, but like they're a, essentially like a fencing. Yeah, I, I imagine like okay. a fencing like lane. This seems a little bit more reasonable. Yeah, yeah, and it's. Uh, I mean, it's not to say that all the bleeding places are necessarily the same. Of course, this one is adorned with the dragons' heads that he's looking deep into and whatnot. And there's there's a lot of great imagery there that exists around this scene that's just wonderful and incredible and intentional so i think regardless of how you consider the question that seraphina poses it raises an interesting and important note for lysander's character so it's it's important to point out here's the here's the question the reaper took your family when you were a boy bologna can you forget can you forgive and i think that this is really interesting because while it's not directly about the sacrifice of the bolognas it is directly about the death of Octavia to Lysander. That's how he internalizes it and the death of Aja and everything else. What do you think about that quote? Do you think he has the capability to forgive? So uh, it's two different questions, isn't it? It's can you forget and can you forgive? And I, I don't think he can forget, but forgive is entirely conditional. I think if, he, how so? if Lysander can be presented with the faults and truly understand the faults of his grandmother and what the society was to a lot of the low colors. And using that understanding to see where Darrow was coming from, I think he could forgive, but I I don't think he could ever forget. And I don't think he's likely to forgive. I don't think he's Mm -hmm. likely to see that side of things, but I think it's possible. Yeah, that's fair. Good point. I dig. The next quote here that I just, I, I love this quote is dangerous game, judging the blade by its scabbards. It's, scabbard it's just a it's a fantastic line it's pretty simple pretty straightforward but i mean it's certainly certainly fantastic is obviously a replacement for don't judge a book by its cover but i'd be really curious to see if that idiom is also in use and this was specifically used for warriors Hmm. like if don't judge a uh blade by its scabbard is is solely used for like fighting kind of things whereas it it, don't judge a book by its cover is still in use that'd be kind of cool to see either way it's cool to it's cool to have modern and real world idioms translated into this sci-fi text in a way that just kind of pushes forward the idea that these combat styles were built into and evolved with society yeah i mean without a doubt i think that that's a a great read on the the whole situation and it's it's interesting this situation meaning of course like history and the way that this all parallels i keep saying that but i think that it's it's an interesting way of of kind of thinking about it is do they potentially break down idioms by 
I mean, they already break down everything else by these casts and colors. Why not match up and line up the idioms? You know, as much as we get some of the sort of naturalistic language of Goodman and Bloody Dam and Gory Dam and, and stuff like that, I feel like there, there are components of of this that have been missing for a bit. You know, there are some early components in the original Red Rising book about like pit vipers and using them as metaphors uh, and sling blades. And that is a metaphor and razors is a metaphor of you know, within idi- within idioms, I should say. It feels like it's something that, you know, done a little bit more frequently could definitely expand on the on the universe. Right. The ensuing combat here, of course, is just amazing. No one writes combat quite like Pierce Brown does. And we also, inside of this, get a new form of Razor or Razor Master in the Shadowfall slash, you know, what they're referred to as the Shades. And wow. Yeah. More description here is really what got me to thinking about uh, the lightsaber stances. God, the actual description of combat is so fucking good. Yeah, especially the way that Belafrond is like treated like he's mentioned as like a scorpion, right? With the his stinger dangling from on high and just the the Katari in addition, the short sword in addition to the Hosta. And sort of the way that it bears down on on Cassius and he keeps like putting up and dropping his his shield, his Aegis, so as so that he can block individual shots right before they hit so that he can save the battery. It just small, small things that are genius. Yeah. Yeah. It's the little little micro movements, Mm -hmm. if you will. I I think especially like the steaming battery after it's described gives a little bit of a, a nice thing too, where it's like, okay, he's running out of time inside of this inside of this fight as well yeah he can only delay for so long Mm -hmm. but it also it it shows how having control of your aegis is just as important as having control over your razor because you could take a couple hits maybe if you were like if you just had it on all the time but being able to very in a controlled way turn it on and off so it doesn't overheat and so it conserves the the actual power of it. It 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 adds an extra layer of mastery to razor fighting, mm-hmm. and to to Cassius and sort of the the whole Willow Way versus the the Shadowfall stance here too. Yeah, certainly. So Bellafron is defeated, decapitated, no more. But then Dido calls out the next, and more follow. Cassius carves through the next two fairly easily, but this is all a part of Dido's grand plan. Yep. God, the description of the fights are so fucking good. They're so good. But I'm I'm kind of conflicted here in that if you were to take these descriptions of these fights and actually translate them to screen as they are, they'd be like a couple seconds long each, maybe. Like there's there's really not a whole lot of being locked in battle here. Cassius just kind of dispatches all of them. Yeah, only with Bellafron is it really a battle. I feel like the the subsequent fights feel more like Gladiator in a way, where it's like they jump in and he just kind of handles them, you know? Like mm-hmm. it's no big deal. He's just waiting for his are you not entertained <laughs> moment um, yeah. to, to shout right here, so to speak. And I do but, agree with you. They're, they'd be quick. And I think that would also be kind of the intention it, it, it is the intention but you'd lose so much in that description of the like of the specific subset of styles that each fighter goes into and their speed and their strength 
and like, it's all broken down here. Whereas if it were a film, it'd be literally like, hey, you go. All right. Sorry. Your head's gone. You go. Oh, well, I guess you well, didn't need arms. Um, yeah. Like, I think, yeah, true. I think the the trick to to pulling it off would be to give it a little bit more time. Not mm-hmm. so much that it's stressful, that it like appears to be actually wearing on Cassius, because I think that's the point is that he dispatches them easily because they're jokes. Um, but you can you can have someone jump down and like you know it's not written here, but they could jump down, they could swing their razor around a little bit and show. Yeah, I, I'm thinking to big trouble in Little China right now. But <laughs> the the sort of like scene where they're they're prepping and running through routine with their individual weapons. There's no reason you couldn't do just a, a couple seconds of that with the individual showing that they've got different styles and then running up and just getting cut in half and make it kind of like kind of a joke in a way because it is a joke to him, especially after killing Bellafron. Right. Yeah. 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 You're right. You you just have to like when think about adaptation, it, a lot of it is like not being so direct all the time what's so strange is that so much of the other stuff we pointed to it's been like that's easy to adapt and you can do it very directly some of this would take a little bit of uh of finessing but i don't think it's it would be that difficult again pierce brown available for a writer's room if you uh if you need me oh no i'd be better untrue Mm. simply untrue Mm. we'll see Mm. Mm. (laughs) uh and then after dispatching the two other fighters Diomedes refuses to go into the ring once again, and so Dido sends in Serafina. Ah, shucky ducky. Shucky ducky. (laughs) (laughs) That is one of my favorite, like, exclamations is, ah, shucky ducky. You do say it a lot. I do. I love it. Not on the podcast, though. I think that's a first. uh, First that's been published. I think I've said it in, uh, in our practice books. That's fair. That's fair. With that, we move into chapter 41, Lysander Hart. Short chapter. Mm-hmm. So Serafina jumps in and disarms Cassius. It's not long before Lysander, reflecting on his childhood and youth, realizes what he has to do and takes the leap into the pit himself to save his mentor, revealing his true identity as the blood of Selenius, the last of the Aloons. Dido herself becomes wrapped up in this reflection, realizing her plan is foiled. But even then, he still offers to open the safe. He doesn't. He doesn't well, offer to open the safe. He calls for the safe to be brought to him. Do you really think that he's not going to open the safe, PJ? No, but you can't extrapolate that. I Unless you're spoiling things for me. Well, do you not extrapolate that he's going to be opening the safe? I don't. I I think he's going to incinerate the entire safe. By putting in the wrong code? Yep. Deleting his proof of his lineage that he just <laughs> claimed in front of everyone? Yep. Hmm. I don't think so. (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) Right. Right. I guess I did. I will. I will apologize. I made the assumption for you, but I I think it's a pretty clean. Well, it's of course, that's the assumption. Of course, that's what's happening. There's no proof yet. He's like, if it's not in writing, except for that whole like uh, bit where uh, Dido is potentially hoarding food. That's not in writing anywhere, but uh, we can we presume that's happening. I said it was (laughs) my guess. I know. I'm just giving you shit. <laughs> you presented this as fact. <laughs> what do you make of the the Serafina so easily? I mean, obviously Cassius is bleeding out. That's clear. But what do you make of uh, her so easily disarming him, and then the whole subsequent kind of moment that leads up to Lysander revealing his identity? I mean, and how do you think it, it compares to Darrow revealing his identity or having his identity revealed? <laughs> do you think it was really a fair fight, Serafina against At Cassius? All? 
Yeah. Of course not. Because no. it was... It was, Cassie's was 1v1v1v1v1, already 1v1 fucking 1v1 dying. but like four of those ones were on the same team in different intervals. Right. So I I think it yeah. I think I think Cassius is lucky to not be just dead on the floor as opposed to be bleeding out on the floor, you know? <laughs> true, true. Not yet decapitated. Lucky to have his head. What do you make of uh, of Lysander's reveal? I called it. That was one of my <laughs> predictions. It's true. Kind of. He didn't like offer his services or whatever, but you know, I called it. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I, I think it's his only chip to play. It's a big chip to play, but I think it's really all he really had, you know? Yeah. Without a doubt. So how do you think Diomedes, Dido, and the rest of the Rim Lords will sort out now confronted with this new information? How do you think Romulus is going to react as well? If and when he finds oh, out. Oh, man. I have no idea. I think Dido is... Well, I, I think Romulus is going to be upset and uh, explosive. But at the same time, I think if he can be calmed down to listen to what's going on, I think he can be converted to understanding where Dido is coming from. So I think that'll be the play, is trying to get Romulus here and make him understand what's going on. Okay. Okay, that's fair. I mean, I guess the the difficulty for Lysander now is he's going to be a target, right? He's now effectively finally revealed himself and is painting a target on his back. So it's an, it's an interesting position for him to be in. Um, yeah. That's it for Lysander. Do you have any other thoughts on Lysander this week? Um, not really. I think he, I think he needs to embrace embrace anybody who is showing him any sort of compassion. And kind of try to force that compassion to grow a little bit. So Serafina, maybe Gaia, kind of get into her good graces. Maybe maybe Granny drop Gaia's some lies. Graces. Maybe drop some lies around Gaia to other people and hmm. see and see where it goes. Interesting. See where Interesting. that 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 false information gets spread. Cool. With that, we move into chapter forty-two. Ephraim, lucky you. Lucky me? Ephraim and... Lucky you. Lucky you? (laughs) Oh my god. Ephraim and Volga are met by Gorgo and the Duke of Hands to turn over the goods from their little heist, turning Pax and Electra over to the Syndicate. I I mean, a lot of these are kind of just summary things. What do you you make of kind of the exchange? What are your thoughts on... uh, on actually following through are you afraid of uh, of the syndicate and the duke of hands going forward okay so first of all i'm just going to address the fact that you called her electra and severo has two kids and i would assume both of them have hatchety faces and electra is not mentioned anywhere explicitly in this chapter so electra was the only one of severo's children that was at the dinner fuck you shh all right <laughs> um but essentially, uh, I thought it was kind of funny to see F go from uh, thief for hire to human trafficker, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's a, that's a tough forced transition for him. That's fair. I mean, can you imagine going from a thief to a human trafficker? I plead the fifth. <laughs> um, fair. <laughs> fine. I'll give you that out. <laughs> 
Um, what do you make of the Duke's extraction of justice demanding that Pax weep? So I mentioned this before. It seems like this is the only sort of bit of power that he actually has. And he wants, he desperately wants something from this transaction and uh, knows that the kids have to be unharmed and unmolested. And I, I guess I didn't mean molested in a sexual way, but with Duke of hands, who knows? Um, <laughs> so I, I, I think, I think he just, he wants, he wants that, he wants that control, but knows he can only go so far with it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so, it's so fascinating because he's ultimately not the one who's winning from this deal, right? It is the queen. And like you said, this is as far as he can really go with the, the whole transaction but he does he does get a sort of sense of satisfaction out of having abducted the lionheart's only child and now kind of the the gains that he knows that the syndicate will make because of the heist that he has helped facilitate Mm -hmm. presumably right well i mean he helped facilitate the heist for sure but presumably like any sort of result from this kidnapping is purely speculative oh yeah yeah i'm totally presuming everything here i'm not i'm not placing any firm stakes in the ground you can place the firm stakes in the ground is that just because i have longer arms and therefore can swing a hammer faster uh yeah your levers will uh will do that perfect your arm lovers uh (laughs) so it's worth it's worth pointing out here the duke does have a what i assume is a bottle of champagne as well to split with uh ephraim for a job well done thinking that they would hang out for a bit and kind of chat uh the champagne is called la dame chenchus i do not speak any kind of french so la dame i don't know someone who speaks french i know at least one of our listeners does please correct me let me know (laughs) <laughs> which is lady luck in french i know that that's definitely correct it doesn't appear to be a current or existing thing but it, i think it's interesting nonetheless if someone knows of course point it out to us but it definitely lines up with the chapter title i will try to uh to decipher la damn chance use yeah this is why we don't have nice things the la damn chance it. use i think say sovereign the, once no <laughs> i'm just kidding <laughs> Um, you're the one that would yeah. say sovereign <laughs> so don't try to put that shit on me i always said sovereign i got a i got interesting side side eyes from my mom when i explained <laughs> how i say that this weekend she was like yeah you're broken uh, like, well, <laughs> whose fault is that i mean partially mine but, probably <laughs> with that though what do you make of uh the lady luck versus the the lucky you in the in the title i mean i think it's it's a nod i don't think it's necessarily anything more than that i think it's just kind of uh meaning drawn from the same place by pierce and by the duke and and choosing choosing names appropriately from that if if pierce segregates or like separates himself in that sort of way while he's writing Sure. If he really gets into the character. So I, I would think it's not necessarily happenstance, but a little bit more born out of the the narrative and born out of the character from from similar positions. Sure. Okay. But worse yet, 
is the situation, of course, that they find themselves in while they're turning to leave. They find out that Lyria has escaped. F and Volga are sat in chairs as they weren't supposed to bring anyone else and interrogated about who the Red was. What'd you make of the interrogation? Uh, he handles it about as well as he could have. Honestly, like he he maintains a level of just stoic behavior. Obviously, they know already because of Sira. But he he plays it off really well, and the the use of his description of what kind of thief he is, like it's all it's all really well done. Not enough, but well done. Good try. Yeah, one of the one of the things um, that I find as an interesting kind of comparison too is the way that Volga handles it is entirely different than the way that Ephraim handles it. Right, like she gets up and she's angry about what's going to happen to the kids um, and kind of all of those different components. She gets put on the ground and he's trying to just ensure that she lives. And it's a, it's a whole mess um, between the two of them, Mm -hmm. but Ephraim handles it great. And Volga reacts with very core and base emotions. I mean, what else is she capable of? Right. Wow. You are really on the (laughs) Volga's simple train. You are just, (laughs) you're dead to me. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Uh, We find out a little bit, i i'm not answering that question (laughs) um for many reasons there are many reasons that i cannot answer this question mostly because you just don't want to no it's not why uh it's not it but sira we find out as well from the duke of hands sira sold them out what do you make of the duke's interrogation and the execution of sira sira here uh the duke of hands is just and fair And I am definitely not saying this under threat of bodily harm. Please do not say disparaging things about such a great man. (laughs) The dude's pretty fucking evil. I mean, like, Boleg, the the obsidian, speaking of your, like, little speech that you gave there, when Boleg comes up and, like, offers up his two hands and he just... Because he fucked up and like let him, he just slaps the left hand as opposed to actually cutting it off. And it's like, Jesus Christ, this man is fickle. And (laughs) he kind of has like elements of of the Joker in him in that way, where like a little bit, a little bit. Like, and when I say the Joker, I mean Joker from uh, from Dark Knight specifically. Yeah, if the the Joker was a middle manager, (laughs) (laughs) fuck. (laughs) Maybe maybe like real Two Face is more accurate, but we'll we'll take it fair enough jesus do you think final question about the chapter do you think that the duke is right about ephraim will he work with the syndicate in the future or do you think that he's out completely i think he would have been right but i think what i what i talked about before his reasoning for not doing the job on zolodon is going to uh hinder that and i i think he'll he'll ephraim will truly use those feelings as a reason for not reapproaching the syndicate for work Okay. All right. Try Man. as they may. Try as they may. Yeah. I mean, also, Sira being a pile of meat on the ground is pretty unfortunate. Forgot to mention that. Not for the people that eat meat. What? <laughs> it's very fortunate <laughs> what did for you the, say? the urchins on the ground levels that, uh, that slurp <laughs> that shit up. people meat? Oh, no. What? Speaking of, uh, Chapter 43, Lyria Street Prey. <laughs> 
Street Prey. You know, just eating, eating the meat. Uh, do you have, do you have any other thoughts on Ephraim for the week? No, not at the moment. That that wraps it up. Okay, fair. So chapter forty three, as we said, Lyria Street Prey. Lyria is having a real bad time again. Real bad, no good, very bad, terrible day. Can't seem to catch an actual break whatsoever. She's just also so self critical here, calling herself poison as she tries to work out next steps during her escape. She's reflecting on life and wishes that she was still in the mines, which is just so tragic to wish for that kind of home, that sense of familiarity, of course, but also the the sort of threat that they lived under even when they were there. You know, it's, I mean, sure it's familiar, but geez, just a lot. Dear diary. (laughs) Today I was used as an instrument of terrorism and child abduction. I've had a pretty tough time with it. Maybe I'll see, maybe I'll sneak some of Sophocles jelly beans because damn it, I've earned it. That's kind of what I, what I feel about that whole thing. (laughs) <laughs> the great great work inserting Lyria's diary back in here <laughs> oh man it's oh, fuck <laughs> you're right though she should sneak some jelly beans because well, i mean jesus but she's had a rough day right i assume she has like a little like i i assume like i have a little treat bag that clips onto my uh my belt for my for my dog she has the same kind of thing that's just filled with jelly beans. And I would steal most of them if I were in her position. I fucking and love jelly beans. <laughs> as long as you aren't eating dog treats, PJ, that's all, that's all I need to clarify. If, if you're eating dog treats, we're going to have a problem. I haven't actually tasted one, but I've been tempted. I want to know what he likes about them. I want to know what they taste like. No, <laughs> don't do it. Oh, man. And then, Jesus, fuck, the run-in with the Reds, the street Reds, is just awful. It's it's one of the things that I love about Lyria, Lysander, and Ephraim stories are how they break down the colors and kind of remove the sort of monomyth that's about them. You know, we get, we're like, gray, all grays are soldiers, but some soldiers are are different than others some are police some are new and so they they it makes the world feel more alive each of these different colors and cultures isn't a monoculture but a microcosm of a social strata in its own right each of these people are different and it's not like we didn't have this before to the varying degrees and i think orion is the biggest example that comes to mind versus the other blues but we didn't get to see it this much these guys are like de facto, disgusting, gross men that would harass a woman on the New York train. You know, same same kind of idea. Yeah. So and and they're all red. So while I, I get what you're saying here, this kind of reinforces the scum that is red to a certain extent, doesn't it? No, because I don't think that that's necessarily full true. It's right? not like full not true. every red. Not it's every not. red is. I, I agree. I agree completely, but it's interesting to see Lyria drop into this position where her her really most serious adversary in this moment is the embodiment of what what high gold society views red as. It, it's almost poetic in that sense. Yeah, is it, isn't necessarily it, do, it it doesn't paint red in a good light. And it's a product of the city, and it's a product of 
where they grew up. But at the same time, Lyria doesn't act like that. And she had the most shit hand that anybody's ever been dealt, you know? Right, right. And that's, and I think that's kind of what I'm trying to get to is that like, we've, we've been now we've seen so many of the different color perspectives that we can understand that it isn't just like all reds are all reds are slaves, but they're, they have different personalities. There are, like I said, social strata that exist. There are still scum. There are still good upstanding people. There are people who are, you know, like Lyria who have some form of morals instilled in them. And uh, it's just, it's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But then she gets blasting. <laughs> <laughs> She like basically she, accidentally disintegrates one of their heads, right? Essentially, uh, I I think it was a leg. Um, or it was if a I leg. remember correctly. Oh yeah, because yeah. he was screaming about it. Yeah, right. Yeah, and then all the rest of them are freaking out. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's good for her. I mean, all all told, it's it's a good thing. We also we we get a brief shortly hereafter when she runs away from the scene, now having escaped with the weapon and everything else. She gets really upset but then she she throws away the gun because she's upset about the fact that she hurt someone and that there's this weapon of violence and it's not who she wants to be but then she sees an obsidian who's clearly meant to be tracking her spirit harpoon someone through the leg and fly away with them uh um uh (laughs) what (laughs) he's going wailing (laughs) jesus christ i got one I got one. It's just fucking. She picks the gun back up again, but like Jesus Christ, the syndicate does not give a shit. Yeah, yeah it's pretty fun. Uh, and Leary escapes, but then decides the best thing to do here is to help the sovereign and turns herself in by walking up to a security checkpoint. I mean, you, you kind of skipped a whole lot of like in between there, where she had to like climb climb some cabling until her fingers were bleeding and then walk up like it's 90 90 stories to the top right Mm -hmm. so she had to walk up a good chunk of that before she was in a good standing area of the city yeah that's that's a fair point it's it's a whole lot of strain 90 floors is no joke have you ever climbed 90 floors probably like over the course of a while (laughs) over the course of a while uh (laughs) no i mean we used to do we used to do uh stairs for swim practice do you remember that when we were in high school of course i do i i I bet we would do 90 in a a practice i feel like we did 30 really consistently 10 times three i feel like we always did sets of 10 okay maybe and then three three flights Three or four. I can't remember. So that'd be 60 then. Because you got to go up and down. Yeah, but down doesn't really count. Yeah, I have long legs. I, I like skipped a lot of the, a lot of the steps. <laughs> it's, <laughs> down's just easier. You got momentum on your side, you know? It's true. But still, we could, have done, ni- we could have done 90. True. It would have sucked. True. But we could have done I it. loved stairs, personally. But My favorite was always the like... The wall sits with the with the uh, oh fuck that with the plate that we had to pass back and fuck forth. that that was my least favorite thing. I'm just tiny boy though, and that's why. Yeah, that's fair. I'm just small. All right, so Lyria <laughs> escapes and turns herself in. And uh, any other thoughts on Lyria? Uh, so the the last part, 
like the last line of that chapter is weapon detected, weapon detected, weapon detected, right? I believe so. Yes. Yep. Uh, she's getting blasted away, and that is the end of Lyria. Just like <laughs> automated Christ. turret coming from behind a wall. <laughs> I think they unceremoniously were to down or something like that. Ending the uh, ending the narrative. So fair. Fair I enough. I salute fair you, enough. Lyria. You uh, you red stain on the concrete in front of the 89th floor. All right. So <laughs> with that, we're going to move into your predictions. And I see what you've written for your own predictions. But I, I just want to ask you a couple of questions before we get there. They're pretty straightforward. We're, we're in this third part. We're in the part of, of resolution and climax of the story, right? Right. It yep. feels like we just hit the climaxes for a lot of these stories. What what is going to happen in this part three to each of our characters? Death or no death is essentially what I'm boiling this down to. Well, I, I'm I'm saying our main characters because you specifically try to keep the main characters out of the mini Deadpool, but the the four POV characters. What's going to what what are we going to see transpire with them? Because we've got you know we've we discussed this off air, but we've got three episodes left. There's tons of ground yet to cover. Yeah, almost 150 pages. I, I don't think any of them have a great time going forward. Like, none of this is set up where they're just kind of eating, eating salad and sipping on Mai Tais <laughs> on the beach. Like, they're, they're all salad on the beach. I feel like it gets <laughs> sand in it. I mean, that's your problem. <laughs> fuck? Okay, continue. Why'd you order a salad then? <laughs> Why'd you suggest salad on the beach? Anyway. It was on the menu. Okay. Jesus. I didn't expect you to buy it. (laughs) (laughs) The fuck? What food would you eat on the beach then? A corn dog? I don't know. Oh my god. Not a salad. <laughs> That's better. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Corn dogs and Mai Tais it is. <laughs> Fuck. Oh. oh no. All right. Can we can we come back and ground this plane? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> All right. what happens to our four main characters I, don't, I have no fucking idea but I don't think they're eating corn dogs and drinking Mai Tais <laughs> I haven't even drank that much I haven't even finished my cocktail this episode oh my god alright <laughs> fucking shit oh god alright um, so you're you're really not sure what's gonna happen with the characters uh, so what we did what you did so you decided to create a mini Deadpool with the remaining characters. Yep. So I, I took out the the characters of which we have a point of view, and I went with Cassius, Cavax, the Ash Lord, Apollonius, Romulus, Dido, and Serafina. All right. You want to run through the names and their conditions? So the and I I did I had other ones that seemed kind of softball e. And because if I'm right, Crossland drinks, and if I'm wrong, I drink, Crossland vetoed some of them. So these are the ones that are ambiguous enough that it's a The fair... only one that I vetoed was Sophocles. Sophocles was one. 
Well, Lysander. Was, I had Lysander in there. Well, right, like, right. No we just pulled characters. off the main characters. Yeah. Right. So, Cassius, I said dead. Cavex, I said alive. The Ash Lord, I said dead. Apollonius, I said dead, which is contrary to what I said in my previous prediction. So, we'll resolve that as we get to it. Um, <laughs> Romulus, I said alive. Dido, I said more like Dedo, and Serafina, I said alive. <laughs> okay. All right. So there's the mini Deadpool. I know that I think that I said that this is just going to be for next week. I think we'll probably just carry this until the end um, as general flags in the ground. But okay. that'll that'll make sense. There's only three episodes left. So, yep. There we go. There's only three episodes left. Jesus. That's pretty crazy, right? Jesus. Plus our uh, plus our fourth episode with with those guests. And if you've gone and checked out our schedule on our website, you would know who those guests are. There's a trio of guests. And that's uh, that's the only hint I'm giving you. Triumvirate. So next. Yeah. Triumvirate. Next week, we'll be reading chapter 44 through 51. So should be a ton of fun. This we're, we're getting to the end. We're getting to that climaxy point, like I said. So, yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Cool. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thanks, of course, to our producers, Tim and Andrew, for helping us keep the show's lights on. Also, check out our links in the show notes. You can find our schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, our websites, our socials, all in one convenient spot at wordsandwhiskey.show. Yeah, show notes as well are just below inside of Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever else you use. You should be able to access everything there as well we'll have a nice convenient link tree up sometime in the next week or two that tim and i designed when we were on vacation so perfect should be coming very soon uh don't forget about our contest that is going on this month of june as well as on instagram for the subterranean press copy of dark age there are two options for entry both through our instagram one is to join our patreon comment and like the post or two, leave us a review and comment your username as well as liking the post and following us so we can message you. This week's spotlight review comes from Abe Lincoln Froman, also a member of our Patreon. So kind of a, a double up here, all told. Thank you so much. As a person who enjoys both words and whiskey, my Scottish heritage won't let me add the extra E. This podcast is absolutely perfect. More than that, as a diehard howler, their Red Rising Saga coverage is second to none. I recommend it to first-time readers, fifth-time readers, and even people who have never seen a book in their life. <laughs> so I shall raise this dram in the name of PJ and Cross. Thank you for spreading the God bloody damn brilliant gospel of blood and barley, my good men. Thank you so much for that fantastic That's review. That's really nice. And if you want to interact with Abe and a number of our other patrons, you can join us at, as PJ mentioned earlier on the show, patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey. Yes. Um, before I go into the final, final like wrap up of the show, Crossland, can you explain what the subterranean press copy is and what it means and the significance of it? Yeah, it's it's a very special edition of the book. There are only 775 of them technically ever made. Uh, there's 26 that are lettered. This is not a lettered copy. They come with special bindings. They're a little bit nicer even than the one that we're doing, but we're doing one of the signed and numbered copies. So there's only 750. Our copy is 509 that we are giving out. It's got a unique art that's on the inside that's only available uh, directly inside of the book. 
And yeah, this is sort of the only edition of these that will ever be made. They don't do reprints or anything like that or additional runs at any point. So this is truly a unique collector's art item that we are parting with as a part of the giveaway. So it's it's insane. Original listing price is $350. They go for more than that now. So recommendation, get in. It's it's cheap. You know, it's it, all all told it's a cheap way of of jumping in and even free if you leave us a review. You can also it it should be well known and established. You can go to Apple Podcasts on any browser, create an Apple account right there and leave a review without actually being on a Mac. So or or an iPhone or anything like that. You're able to do it no matter the browser, no matter the computer. So perfect. Um, going backwards slightly, just rewind. Um, Abe Lincoln Froman, thank you very much for the review. I bullshit with you all the time on our uh, on our Patreon Discord channel, but I I really really appreciate the words that you put for for us. Um, with that, thank you all, and we will see you next week. Bye.